0: Hello, Land podcast, Phil, and all the ships at sea. This is Seth Greenland, and you're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Today we're going to discuss the horrific propaganda videos being produced by ISIS. We'll discuss an article that's appearing in the most recent edition of the Chronicle of Higher Education. It's called What's Wrong with Public Intellectuals? The subhead should be, of course, and does anyone care? Joining me today are LARB editor, writer critic in Galibout Town, Lori Weiner, and substituting for our fearless leader, Tom Lutz, who claims to be searching for a hidden city in Honduras, is USC professor Leo Brody, who is among America's leading cultural historians and critics. He is currently the university professor and Leo S. Bing chair in English and American literature at the University of Southern California, where he teaches restoration literature and history Also, American culture after World War II. I could go on. I sprained my wrist picking up his resume. We are thrilled to have him with us to discuss these topics on the LARB Radio Hour today.
1: In today's New York Times, by today I mean the day we're taping, February 20th, there is a story about the ISIS videos. The headline is, Brutal ISIS Videos Show Potency of Shock Value. And the point of the story is that a lot of people in Syria, anti-government activists, are upset because they feel that all of the violence in their country being perpetrated mostly by Assad, no one is paying any attention to. And these graphic sensationalist videos by ISIS, everybody is paying attention to and they're starting to make videos of their own. For instance, one uh, village guy got all of the children, put them in orange jumpsuits, put them in a cage, and pretended to start to set fire to the cage. Of course, the children were horrified and crying and screaming, but he did this to make a point, which was pay attention to the violence that's happening in our country. This seems to me like mixing apples and oranges. ISIS is not making these videos to uh, make people sensitive to atrocity. Quite the opposite. What are these videos supposed to do, do you think, the ISIS videos?
2: Well, I think, you know, they have mixed motivations here, very mixed motivations. And the kind of, a, you know, ob- obviously ISIS is using us in great part as a recruiting tool that somehow people are going to be inspired to join them when they show these videos. I mean, that's one aspect of it.
0: And, to, and obviously to terrify, along with uh, recruiting one cohort and terrifying another.
1: But what about, it seems to me, the the great majority of people would just be horrified and angry and want to smash them as a result of watching these videos.
0: Well, they've, they've bounced back in a way. I mean, I think their intent regarding uh, the West has been to uh, mortify people and to push them away from the conflict and to not get them involved. And in fact, the exact opposite seems to be happening. It seems the videos have more stirred up a hornet's nest in the West than anything else.
1: Well, that had to be extreme naivete on their part to think otherwise.
0: Well it's interesting because although they appear to be sophisticated propagandists, you look at the videos and they're made quite professionally, their thinking seems to be very shallow, actually. Well I think that's true and it's it's the thing the problem is, of course, when
2: you do something like this and you put it out there, it's all it's open to all sorts of interpretations, including contradictory interpretations. I mean they come into this situation. They're very sophisticated in a technical sense. But in fact, in a propaganda sense, they it could totally
0: we're down against them, Leo. This is this is not a new thing. You you were a cultural historian of some repute. Why don't you walk us through a, a history of the way images have been used to manipulate people politically?
2: I suppose you know. This really, starts in the 18th century uh, when printing processes become. More open when they become cheaper, when people can buy cartoons on the street, when cartoons can be embedded in in magazines and journals and things like that. But they're usually, and this is a difference, I think, between in terms of the history of propaganda, they're usually part of a narrative. You know, you have John Bull and Napoleon duking it out or something like that. Uh, You know, you have something happening and then you have all sorts of words and things like that. Because they have to be explained because visual images don't
0: carry their meaning just right on the surface. They have to be explained. And their texts, those things you're describing actually become texts that we deconstruct. So would you say, jumping forward to ISIS, is ISIS closer to pornography than to political propaganda or, or is it both?
2: Well, I think it is closer to pornography. It's closer to like to the Saw films. It may be close or the Hostel films. Uh, you know, which is usually referred to as torture porn. Uh, in that way. I mean, it's like an extreme version of of horror films. But even there, even in those films, there is a narrative. There is a story that is trying to direct you to to find what the meaning of what's going on is. Whereas here, it's basically just an image. These people being decapitated there and, and the guys in masks standing behind them or wherever it is. What's the story there?
1: Have either of you watched any of the videos?
2: No, I haven't. No, I haven't either.
1: I have not, although I've kind of gotten to the brink of watching them. But apparently, as I I read in this New York Times story, sometimes there is a kind of a narrative. For instance, there's a video that shows the ISIS soldiers marching a bunch of people, they said, kind of gently, on the seashore to the ocean. And then they behead them there until the waves turn red. Is how they describe it. So that's it.
0: closer to romance than to porn. Is that, is <laughs> yeah. that what you're describing?
2: Well, the thing is, you know, Joan of Arc was burned alive. Uh, I mean, you know, you can always you can always turn somebody into a martyr that way. I mean, why? And I think that's what's happening. Let's say, you know, with the execution of those uh, of the Christians uh, there in Libya. There, I mean, it's, it, it goes both ways. You know, it, it could, it doesn't necessarily go to ISIS's meaning. It could also go to the meaning of the people being executed.
1: Of course, I mean, I would think that that would be the case for the majority of people watching it. Th- they must know that, but they're counting on some small percentage of the watchers who will feel what Seth. What you know? What are they? Looking, what are they hoping a, f- a small percentage would feel?
0: They create a pornography of violence that's very attractive to these people who've been numbed by, I think, cultural images that have been thrown at them ironically by the West that they claim to deplore, but that at the same time they've internalized and they find this very attractive on some level, which is why many young men from Western countries have gone to enlist and fight with ISIS.
2: But I think also though, if there's no ideological or religious you know, image in this. That is you have to believe to begin with to see this as a something that encourage you to believe more and to join ISIS there. I mean, you could also see this whole thing as something directed internally to ISIS to make sure that the people who are already there
0: uh, stay there, in fact, because they're complicit in this. As a means of maintaining order. Exactly. Sure. I view these things as a means of creating an internal narrative in the viewer. The narrative they're engendering is not what's on the screen. It's what's taking place in the mind of those of us who are watching. Mm -hmm. And what we're telling ourselves, they hope, I think this is their their authorial idea is that we're, we're we're telling ourselves Isis is going to kill me. If I if I interface with them in any way, they will kill me. The narrative is our own death.
1: But in terms of of terrorizing people, I mean, I hate to bring up the Nazis because, you know, they are talked about a lot. We were hoping to get but, through one show without discussing I, Nazis, I don't but think, yet,
0: again, yet again we again,
2: Nazi, Nazis so. are Laurie's, uh, King Charles's head. You remember in Great Expectations, uh, uh, when Mr. Dick can't write anything, and keeps m- mentioning King
0: Charles's head.
1: Well, for me, it's Nazis and kittens. But um, <laughs>
0: And Oscar Hammerstein.
1: And Oscar too. Hammerstein. But if you think about how the Nazis used terror, they used it brilliantly in that you can't show it like this, what you do is you, you put them in a concentration camp where people hear tell things or you murder people with mobile units out in the countryside. You want enough terror to seep through to the general population, but you don't want so much terror that people are going to rise up against you in, in mass.
2: You know, they kept this very much under wraps, what was going on in the concentration camps and things like I mean, even for the people in the concentration camps, you weren't being told... I mean, yes, you go in, take a shower, it'll be fine. You'll be nice and clean, and everything. So I mean, so they're they're not really trying to develop terror, even in the people that they're actually going to kill.
1: Well, they understood that to to kill a large number of people, you have to mollify and keep them calm at certain. Certain right. times,
2: but I think it goes along with the the fact that they tended to to soft pedal or to you know to gloss over anything having to do with that. Whereas their their basic propaganda machine was about ideology and you know why it's great to be a Nazi and what National Socialism is. I mean
0: the Lenny Riefenstahl thing. Well, the incredible thing about the ISIS videos, Leo, to your point about the Nazis selling Nazism, is ISIS doesn't seem to be selling anything. Not to veer into politics here, but the fact that Obama has divorced them from Islam in his in his recent rhetoric makes a lot of sense in that respect. They themselves don't really reference their cause or their religion in any other way other than brutality.
2: Well, that's why I can't see that anything is going to happen from these things except to redound against them somehow that in fact, because they're depending on people who are dissatisfied and alienated, uh, who happen to have, perhaps a Muslim background.
0: It seems that so many of the people who were drawn to this are misfits, they didn't uh, thrive in their societies, losers, if you will, and they go fight with ISIS and engage in a cause larger than themselves. And I wonder, given how malleable they are, is there a counter-narrative that the West can promote? if anybody has some clues about this, it's people who work with gangs.
2: Because so much of what ISIS does seems to me to be very similar to, to what gangs do. They create a sense of family. They bind you to that family through violence, by making you commit violence, by having you witness violence. And so it seen to me that you know sociologically there's a lot, of, a lot of similarity here. And I just wonder, in fact, I haven't seen anybody who's done this, who's been stepping in, but it does seem to me pretty analogous.
0: Against your better judgment, you've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. This is Seth Greenland. I'm with Lori Weiner and Leo Brody. Adrian Todd Zuniga, who would smear deviled eggs all over himself and run through a crowd of starving prisoners if he thought it would further <laughs> the cause of literature, is here with more tales from the literary death match.
3: When I was doing the show in Helsinki for the first time ever, we were struggling to find one of the judges, and we weren't sure who to find, and then all of a sudden I found out that Jeffrey Eugenides was going to be in Helsinki at the exact same time. So I wrote him, and I was like, I know you've never done Literary Deathmatch, but Helsinki is an incredible place, and I'd love for you to do it. And he wrote back, and he's like, oh, I'll check my schedule, but if I can, I'm in. And he goes, you like Helsinki? And I was like, yeah, it's so great. And he's like, ah, it's always so dark and bleh. And I was like, oh, well, I'll take you out to dinner with some friends, and then you'll understand how great it can be. And uh, the next night, show up. I bring these three girls who were, like, think about the most beautiful Finnish girls in the world. The One was a Lutheran minister, who was one of the most fascinating people on earth. And then my friend, who I'd met in London, and just all these people, and were there. Uh, having this great dinner, and at one point he starts talking about celebrity lookalikes, and he decides that he knows who my celebrity lookalike is, and he he shows everybody a picture of Barry Manilow at age twenty-three, which I have to say can't be more inaccurate. Uh, it's but not nice. <laughs> it's not nice. So yeah, we're having this great dinner, and then we're you know the show's the next night, and uh, he's judging intangibles because the entire show is in Finnish. So Jeffrey Eugenides on intangibles, Finnish people all around. He and I are the only ones speaking English. And to introduce the judges, what I'll do is I'll ask them each a question. Just, you know, let the audience know who they are and just, you know, it's just a fun question. And he was wearing a hat and I had asked him about the hat. And he said that it was given to him by a Finnish girl who he had been dating, I believe, in college. But they had to break up because she was allergic to his semen and he said that he had decided to wear this hat to honor her and honor this moment, and uh, that was Jeffrey Eugenides' Judging Intangibles in Helsinki. Pretty amazing. (laughs) I was
4: just gonna let
2: that
0: Tom, you talked to Michael Tolkien recently, and that guy has had an impressive career. He is a novelist, a screenwriter, a director. He's best known for writing the novel The Player, which became the Robert Altman film of the same name for which he wrote the screenplay. Uh, he wrote and directed a movie called The Rapture, which was very, very good, and uh, a whole lot of other things. I think he's on the staff of Ray Donovan, the Showtime show right now. And he's
4: also a lover of classic American literature, and that's the thing that he and I talk about whenever we get together, and we've put together a clip from a longer interview, which we have on the website, lareviewbooks.org. Here's a little clip about one of his favorite novels, The Professor's House by Willa Cather. Your favorite book in the world is The Professor's House, which is odd, Let's let's
5: admit it. Why is it odd? for the best book ever written to be your favorite book. That's a good very good reason. You know, it's like uh, Willa Cather, I, I never understood there was like this some sort of like Willa Cather Revival or Willa Cather reappraisal, uh, I don't know 10 15 years ago. And when I was at college, Willa Cather was just part of the, you know, part of the canon and I could never understand why Willa Cather was being treated like there was something uh, slightly off about her And then I realized Well of course She represents the West And anybody who writes From the perspective of the West Is going to be reviled By the tastemakers of the East
4: Do you really think that's true?
5: Oh it's absolutely true
4: Did they revile Wallace Stegner? Who?
5: <laughs> <laughs> I don't still, know Well but Stegner still... No no but see First of all I'm not I, You know My shelf is of certain writers Is spotty but you know he was teaching at Stanford, so that was a kind of moral laundry, a mm. cultural laundry, mm. laundromat. Well, uh, if you taught at Stanford, it's like okay, so you're kind of yeah, well you're sort of an East Coast guy anyway. Yes.
4: So uh, the, the the professor's house, the main character, is not uh, exactly the the person that you just you fall in love with, Godfrey Saint Peter.
5: Well, no, but it's like. No, but you fall in love with Tom Outland, and all that matters is that everybody in the book is in love with Tom Outland. This.
4: So when you read war. it, you read it in college?
5: Yeah, I read the it first in college, line. yeah.
4: And at that point, you were identifying with the Tom Outland character.
5: Yeah, I actually probably read the Tom Outland story 30 times compared to three or four times for the rest of the novel. And it was only a couple of years ago that I was finally, I felt really old enough to see what St. Peter's journey was like and and to see... That Cather had written a book that didn't, and, and is, as I think often in the best of Cather, that doesn't really resolve in, in a way that's traditionally acceptable. The best example of that is My Mortal Enemy.
4: Mm, fantastic.
5: Yeah, it's fantastic. It's one of the great... It's like, it's like the My Mortal Enemy. If that had been written in Russian or French... And then what we were reading was the translation. It would be one of the five books that everybody knew.
4: I think that that's actually true. It's got um, a, a kind of complexit- moral and uh, psychological complexity of a Russian novel.
5: Right. And it's one of these books, and this is where I think what's, what' gathers c- out at, at her best. it's sort of hard to tell what she's really thinking by the time it's done. Yeah, you know she'll have she'll have really acute relationships. An acute perspectives. You know, she has characters who are very good at observing other characters and being really clear about the other characters and clear about themselves, but incapable of solving the larger moral problem of existence.
4: Is Godfrey St. Peter incapable as well?
5: This is a man who, first of all, he's a historian who becomes the mentor to an engineer who dies and leaves a fortune and a trust, whose children fight over the trust and fight over the love that he had for them who has been renting a house his entire life when he could have afforded to buy and finally because of the money that that they're taking from the tom outland trust he's building a house getting absolutely no pleasure from that his wife and children go on a voyage to europe and when they come back, they're strangers to him, and he has no feel. Really, I think he has no real feeling for them at the end of the book. Why? Because life. That's why. And and it's not. There's no. It's not a programmed novel, the way I think. Mo- the way the East Coast novels are more programmed. Programmed for reception. Programmed to be thought about and written about. Um, the West Coast novel, I think, or the Western novel is harder to talk about. And I've found this with, with Cather. It's harder to talk about because the assumptions of what you're reading it for or what it's being written for are not the same assumptions as the well-told Eastern book.
4: Ah, like what, what, what's the difference in assumption?
5: The difference in assumption is that sensitivity... For the East Coast novel, sensitivity and sensibility are the goal. And the more sensitive and more sensible you are, the higher you're, at, the, high, the more elevated you are because you're suffering for it. For the West Coast novel, the morass is larger than your sensitivity
0: and sensibility. Oh,
3: one, two, three, to you. My heart cries out for video.
0: This is the LARB Radio Hour brought to you or by I the LA the Review the love of
3: Books. Of my life in somebody else's
1: There's an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education dated February 13, 2015. It's titled, What's Wrong with Public Intellectuals? Since I'm here with two public intellectuals, Leo Brody and Seth Greenland, I'm going to ask, well, first of all, what is a public intellectual, Leo, in your definition? How would you describe that?
2: Well, I think there are different kinds of public intellectual. There are public intellectuals who speak out of their own disciplines, who have expertise in their own disciplines and are called upon to be like talking heads on CNN or Fox because they have that expertise. And then there are public intellectuals who who speak to general big issues that are going on. That is the first kind of public intellectual is somebody who is reactive you know let's let's call in the expert on this issue the other kind of public intellectual starts out with a platform of his or her own and with an agenda of his or her own but still is using springboarding off of the fact that they
0: supposedly have expertise in that area what is the role leo as you see it of the public intellectual in america today and two part question and does it matter in other words is anyone paying attention well, I think it's hard to pay attention these
2: days because everybody can just add a comment to a thread on, online and be a semi-public commentator, let's say, rather than a public intellectual. I mean, supposedly intellectual means that you have some kind of expertise, that you can look at the big picture, that you can generalize, uh, that you have ideas, let's say, rather than just responses. But this is a world of immediate responses to everything. And I think that definitely waters down uh, any kind of authoritative voice. Is this what happens when you take democracy to its logical end? To a certain extent. I mean, you know, it's a positive thing, let's say, that people feel empowered to make these comments. But, uh, you know, as in so many other areas, democracy does often imply a watering down of kinds of hierarchies of, of possibility. Who do we trust? I mean, the whole question of who do we trust on the air? Who do we trust on TV? Who do we trust online? There becomes muddled in this kind of world. Well, the public forum seems to have become like bear baiting. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot. You know, there's a lot of snarkiness involved, definitely. And people sort of hide behind their handles and Twitter accounts and and can snark away. I think it'll settle down after a while when people start getting a little bored with doing that. Perhaps, you know, voices that actually should be paid attention to, you know, will be paid attention to. But it's definitely a a transitional period, as so many
0: are. I'm picturing Cicero reading the comments section to one of his pieces.
1: (laughs) When I think of a public intellectual, I think of The Dick Cavett show and he would have on whoever was the public intellectual at that time whether it be Norman Mailer or Gore Vidal that they had a famous feud I think of Susan Sontag which most people could recognize her and knew her name but probably had no idea what her ideas actually were I also think of Gore Vidal because my mother knew who Gore Vidal was and if my mother knew then it's a real breakthrough transcends the category intellectual because she loved Myra Breckinridge book
0: but that's the gateway drug to Gore Vidal I think is fantastic It is,
1: but Gore Vidal became so kind of in my mind deranged toward the end like he thought 9-11 was an inside job etc that I think he gave up the mantle of public intellectual because you can't be a public intellectual and be so eccentric we count on the public intellectual to kind of sum up what's happening from the intellectual sphere which is high and you see with a lot of perspective. I think he Uh, lost that right.
0: Yeah, Leo, I'd like to ask you this. Do you feel that the public intellectual of 2015 is a polemicist at this point? Well, to a great extent, and I think just responding to what
2: Laurie was saying, that is the uh, publicness. I mean, that's where the public gets more emphasis than the intellectual does. Uh, And it just reminds me of late-night talk show situations where somebody comes on, let's say, who is, I don't know, a performer, whatever, and just because you are in public— you are somehow supposed to have ideas about everything that the public is thinking about. They are, okay, you know, you were great in that movie. What do you think of nuclear disarmament? I mean, it's, or what do you think of global warming? And Well, everybody has opinions about that, but you know, the question is what kind of authority do you give to people who are in
0: public because they have those opinions? Well, that's one of the things that makes Bill Maher's show so occasionally inadvertently hilarious. I'm thinking of a time recently where he had Ben Affleck on and the author, Sam Harris, who's written written insightfully about religion, particularly Islam. And, and and Ben Affleck took exception to Sam's work. And Sam, who's a scholar, who backs his, uh, his writing up with a great deal of research and thought, was taking on Ben Affleck in what was essentially a wrestling match on Bill Maher's show. And I would say that Ben Affleck did not win. But he, boy, he had the courage of his convictions. He
1: did, but he lost because he lost his cool... And I remember an English professor of mine saying uh, this was during the time when Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer were feuding, had a public feud. And I always remember this line in an argument, in a public argument, Gore Vidal will always win because Mailer would lose his cool. But in 100 years, no one will be reading Gore Vidal and people will be reading Norman Mailer. That's that's how he assessed the situation. But, you know, I think the person who loses his cool usually loses the argument.
0: Those examples are terrific because unlike the men and women out there today, they seem to be taking a more Olympian view of the situation and weren't necessarily coming down hard left or hard right, but were able to contain contradictory ideas within their own intellects and express complex thoughts. Whereas today, whether it's Michael Moore on one side or Ann Coulter on the other side, first of all, the level of the public intellectual seems to be significantly diminished based on the two-dimensionality of what they're saying. But there doesn't seem to be room for the person who's capable of saying, but on the other hand. And you wonder, is there is there something... The whole country seems stuck in that place, and the role of the public intellectuals seems very much glued to where the country is in that way. And I wonder if there's anything that can get it unstuck. Or, or to cut through the the incredible media clutter, do you really need to come down very hard on one side? Because if you're not, will anyone pay attention?
1: I think the answer to that is no, because if you cannot see both sides, you cannot be a public intellectual.
2: Well, also, uh, you know, people like a good fight. And, and in fact, uh, Mailer and uh, Vidal would go around to places and, and duke it out before an audience on whatever issue. Mailer did this with William F. Buckley as well there. So, I mean, this, you know, maybe that's the beginning of this kind of, is it really, it's kind of a diminishment of the ideas in favor
0: of seeing the combat. Is there anybody today who we would say rises above the fray, in that sense? Aside or is from it, Leo? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> aside no, right. from our guest, Leo Brody.
1: You know, crickets, right? I mean, it's really hard <laughs> yeah. to think of somebody.
2: I mean, this is a wonderful situation because we can sit and we can converse and Seth and Laurie and kind of, we can all go back and forth. But usually what happens is somebody comes in, tapes you for an hour, and uses three seconds of what you said. So there's no context for it. There's no development of the ideas. It's just plugged into the article or the show or whatever, the video where they want it. Leo, connect the idea of the public intellectual to the infotainment complex. The 24-7 news channel has totally changed everything. I mean, that is the need for content, the need for having somebody say something about something and usually then repeating what they say a hundred times during the day, you know, trivialize that position. It doesn't seem thoughtful. It doesn't seem meditated. It doesn't seem like the conclusion that you come to after really
0: looking at the issue in a complicated, nuanced way. It's a soundbite. So off what, Laurie, what you were saying about crickets, the true public intellectual is a completely marginalized figure today. And what we think of as public intellectuals really are quasi-entertainers. The thing is that, you know, we make some
2: distinction perhaps between uh, the United States and Europe Uh, in this way, that in France and in England and perhaps in Germany, I'm not sure, but certainly in France and England, it is still possible for somebody to be a public intellectual in the old way that we're talking about. Because it is still possible to, to make a life, you know, and to, a sustainable life by writing articles, by writing book reviews, and perhaps teaching the occasional class in a university. It's almost impossible here.
0: Yeah, there's, there's no American Bernard-Henri Lévy. There's no figure like that here. Right. Thanks to our producer, Jerry Gorin, Michael Tolkien... Adrian Todd Zuniga, to the generous support of the Gold Hirsch Foundation. For Leo Brody and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. See you next week.